This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. Hey everyone, welcome back to another Dojo Live. Today is Wednesday, January 26, 2022. This is Tulio Siragusa broadcasting from Southern California. And joining me is Kim Lantis in Hermosillo, Mexico. Hi, Kim. Welcome back. Hello, thank you. I want to recognize Kim. Kim's a champ. She's on the show while she's fighting <laughs> that dreaded nasty COVID. So thanks for being with it's us. It's day four uh, or five, I think. I'm going to make it. <laughs> we promise if you're Better. watching this show, you cannot spread it via video. Okay, so don't go away. No need to wear a mask to watch us. Okay, so welcome to the show. We have Swiss, Swiss uh, Goswami. Goswami. Uh, Goswami. Uh, who is the CEO at Surf joining us today from Toronto, Canada? Welcome to the show. We're looking Thank forward you. to talking with you. Same here. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about the data economy today, but before we dig in and see what we can uncover and learn, uh, let's get to know our guest a little bit. Uh, if you could introduce yourself, Swish, we'd love to get to know you a little bit, and then we'll talk about Surf. Sure. Yeah, I'm a I'm a 24 year old entrepreneur. I uh, I love. A lot of things in life. So I've been curious pretty much my whole life, which has led me to do a number of different things growing up. I was born and raised in Singapore, uh, which is a small country in Asia, very beautiful, very clean. Um, I grew up there as a dancer, a basketball player, a student, an avid academic. Um, I was a debater as well. And um, I did a lot of things in my childhood that really exposed me to quite a number of kind of areas, things that I was interested in, things that I wasn't as interested in. And uh, in high school, I became very laser focused on debate. So when I moved to Canada, when I was, I think, about 10 or 11 years old, um, I started doing competitive debate and uh, did competitive debate all the point all the way till high school. In high school, I joined the national team, debated for Canada for three years. And normally, if you debate at a fairly high level, you either want to go into politics or law. And I knew for me, politics was probably something I'd want to do. But later in life, definitely not right now with this political climate either. Um, but I thought law could be pretty interesting. So I got into um, a pre-law program, went to the University of Toronto. My brother is a lawyer. Um, he was actually finishing up law school when I got into my undergrad program. And looking at the work that he had to do, I slowly became less fascinated by the law. <laughs> you know, he loves it. He loves reading. He loves prepping for cases. But I thought law was literally just going to court and arguing. And that's like 10% of the work, if not less. Most of the work is reading and writing, um, especially if you go into something like corporate law, where kind of your first three, four years, you're not even seeing a courtroom normally. So I thought, what do I want to do with my life? And this was where in second year, I actually decided to drop out to go and get some work experience and figure out what I wanted to do. Because I had a lot of ideas, but I didn't have a lot of experience under my belt. And I worked at a VC right after my second year in New York. Um, and during the process of working during the summer after my second year in New York, I became roommates with a guy named Elliot, and he started this massive Instagram account for basketball fans at Dunk. So I joined him, worked with him for about a year on this account. We grew the account to over 11 million followers across 21 accounts. The main account at Dunk on Instagram still exists today, has about 2.4 million. And my job was very much around team management, fundraising, and working with brands. So we worked with brands like Warner Music and Gatorade and 2K to promote their content on our channels. 
that gave me a really good inside look into marketing, into influencer marketing, into data and privacy. And it's the reason why I started TrueFan, which is now Surf, four years ago. Um, and obviously during that process, had the opportunity to speak about marketing, write a book about youth entrepreneurship and do a number of things that all tied to kind of my core passion now, which is running Surf full time. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely don't want to get into an argument with you. Uh, <laughs> but, but the big and, question uh, is, where what happened to dance? Where is that? Oh, I, I, when, I, when, I was in, when I was in New York, I danced at the uh, Broadway Dance Center for a year. And then wow. uh, obviously now, because of COVID, I'm not able to dance anymore. But there are a couple of studios in Toronto I've talked to. I'm, I'm kind of excited, you know, once lockdown ends, maybe I'll get back out. Because it's such a great way to just disconnect from work altogether, meet some cool, creative people, and, and just get a sweat in, which I really enjoy. Nice. Very cool. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about surf. Yep. Uh, first of all, that's a really cool name. Uh, <laughs> just four letters. Which yeah. is, uh, it's I hard to find that sometimes. Mm -hmm. They actually did a study that companies with the shortest names tend to end up getting the largest valuation on exit. So congratulations for a cool short name. Tell us what the company does. What's what's it all about? Sure. I mean, at a high level, Surf uh, helps brands understand and engage with consumers. And we also compensate consumers for their data directly. So to think about Surf, you, you first look at our browser extension. We released it a couple of months ago. Um, it gives people points for browsing the internet like normal. So on Chrome, Firefox, or Opera, you turn the extension on, you browse the internet just like you would normally do, and we give you points in exchange for your browsing data that you already share to Google and Firefox, but obviously get nothing back for it. Uh, with those points, you can use them for items and gift cards. You can donate the points to charity. Um, down the road, actually, in about a month, we're going to be allowing people to use their points for giveaways as well. So if you don't want a direct reward and you want the chance or the lottery experience, you can also use your points for that. Um, on the Obviously, on the flip side, with the brand side, Surf for Brands, we work directly with brands to allow them to understand web data. Um, so all the data we get from Surf, we pass it on to brands. It's all anonymized, though, so people will never know where Swish went on the internet, but I will be grouped based on my age, gender, and location. So a brand like Nike, for example, will be able to understand what are the most popular publication 18 to 24-year-old males in Toronto are reading. And that's the type of insight they're not able to get anymore with third-party cookies going away. And also, a brand like Nike will be able to provide rewards in our marketplace to get some of our consumers to directly use their points on it and become a customer. So there's two ways that we work with brands, either through analytics or through commerce enablement. I love it. Mm -hmm. Monetizing the perpetually connected consumer. What yep. an amazing thing. Okay, so <laughs> let's dig in and see what else we can learn. Uh, Kim, if you please uh, introduce the topic and the question that we're going to answer today, and let's get right into it. For sure. I think we've already dug in quite in, in depth for today's topic, um, but thank you for being here today, Tuviel, and Swish, of course. The topic, as chosen by you, is building an equitable data economy. How can consumers get value for their data? So what I'd like to ask for you to you is, to me, this keyword, the really most intriguing word is equitable. Mm -hmm. Why is that important to you? Why did you choose to talk about that today? Yeah, it's a great question. So you know, I've been pretty fascinated, uh, just generally speaking, around data for a while now. Uh, and my it's actually funny because it actually ties to my background in debating. In my grade 12 year, when I was 
debating for the national team, uh, we had a world championship in Singapore. I know back in my home country, so had to had to try to do well. Um, and we went into the f- final, and we went up we went up against Singapore. So I went up against my home country in the grand final in my home country, uh, and you know we lost sadly. But the topic was around universal basic income, and Singapore was for it. And they talked about how potentially data sharing could help, you know, one day facilitate a universal basic income, i.e., you know, people right now are sharing data across so many different platforms, Amazon, Facebook, Google, etc., and they're not getting anything back for it. You know, especially on social media platforms, really what you're getting back for the data you share is, yes, a personalized experience, but more importantly, a personalized ad experience. You're just getting a ton of tailored and targeted ads. And I don't know if that necessarily is a fair value exchange. So that's why for me, an equitable data economy is important because especially as people become you know, more digitally connected, as we move into things like the metaverse, I do think it's important that people have ownership over their data. And part of ownership means the ability to be compensated for it, which is something obviously that doesn't exist right now. This is very interesting. Uh, often we've been referred to, we being consumers, I've mm-hmm. been referred to as the product of Correct. publishers, right? Yeah, we are actually their product that they are presenting to advertisers. Yep. They have rich data and, and context about what we like and what we dislike. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't get compensated for being the product. If you're going to be a product, you should get, you should monetize that, right? So. Yep. So this is, in essence, the ability for me to, to monetize what I'm already doing. Exactly. And, and so is there additional – I know that you aggregate the information. You mentioned that you're aggregated, so mm-hmm. you're not actually sharing the specifics with the, end, uh, with the companies that are buying it for marketing purposes, advertising purposes, et cetera, or e-commerce. Yeah. Um, if I want, do you see do you see a future where potentially some consumers could opt in to say, you know, I want to have a relationship with certain brands. I yes. want them to know me one to one. How do we facilitate that? Because there's some people open to that. Absolutely, I, I I think that is the future for sure. I don't know how soon that future will exist because the biggest hurdle for that future to happen is consumer education. Right. I mean, most people candidly don't even know how much data these big tech companies take from them, let alone how to control it. So I think, number one, people need to understand. I think documentaries, for example, like The Social Dilemma have done a great job of spotlighting how invasive some of these platforms have been and continue to be. But I think people need to understand what data they're sharing. I think people also need to then have a vested interest in terms of monetizing their data. You know, I know my friends love surf and I know they love surf because it's passive. They don't have to really do much to get compensated. But if I told them that you have to now broker your own data deal and you have to integrate all these data sources and you have to pick a brand to share your data to, it's a little bit more work. And I don't know if we're there yet in terms of people caring that much about their data. So I think down the road, obviously, as data becomes more and more prevalent in everything we do as we move towards the metaverse, which in my opinion, I don't believe the metaverse is a place. I think it's a period of time where we become even more digitally connected than we are now. Data is only going to become more and more important. That's where I do believe having an ability to own your data, to then shop it around on your own without even surf, that's something that is super interesting. And hopefully surf could even facilitate that with the marketplace down the road. Interesting. Um, if you could walk us through some some use cases where this has been very valuable bilaterally, right? Both 
like we see the value to the consumer in terms of getting points and monetizing their their uh, browsing but is there also some how does this actually create better value for that consumer once the brand that purchases that information how does it, how is the connection happening that's different than cookies and things that are in place right now definitely um so i think I mean, the value prop to consumers, there's four key things there, right? Number one is there is tangible compensation, which cookies don't give you, right? When you accept cookies on a website, you share your data, but you don't get absolutely anything back. So obviously us giving points to people is great. By the way, we don't wait to sell your data to give you points. We give, your, give you points up front. So, you know, there are obviously other platforms out there that say, oh yeah, integrate your data. We'll shop it. And when we go and shop it around and sell it, then we'll compensate you. That's not what we do. We give people immediate value for their data. And by the way, we also don't care where you go on the internet, right? Like the whole goal of SERP is that you are passively browsing the internet. You're doing what you already do. I don't care if you're on YouTube all day. I don't care if you're on Business Insider reading articles all day. We do not discriminate on where you go on the internet. We think every single person's value, like data should have value and we will give that value appropriately. That's I think number one. Number two is transparency. You know, I think we give people clear transparency over the fact that we are sharing data from day one. We don't hide away from it. When you sign up for SERP, you know it. When you go through our tutorial, you know it. We actually give people an activity log where they can see every piece of data they've ever shared to us. They can delete, edit, manage that data at any time. If they want to download their data, they can do that. If they want to delete their data, they can do that. If they want to delete their account, they can do that too. We want users essentially to feel like they're in the driver's seat here. And we're just obviously helping them in terms of being the gatekeepers of a vision. And then thirdly, obviously everything's passive. You don't need to take surveys. You don't have to watch ads, just browse like you normally do. And finally, there's flexibility with that too, where if you want, you can have surf on, but you can also keep your VPN or your ad block on as well. So you can protect your privacy while also being compensated for your data, which is pretty powerful. So I, uh, one question, go ahead, Kim, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for you. I have a follow up. No, no, go ahead. Follow up. Okay, it's cool. follow up time. So I know, I know, for example, that today people have used not just cookies data, they've used pixel data without you knowing it, right? Mm -hmm. They, they drop a pixel, they follow you around. Most of it has been used for, uh, you know, advertising, following you and then using that for re, uh, re, uh, advertising campaigns, et cetera. Yep. But also that's data that's been sold to a lot of brands to gain some insights on a market and so forth. Whereas yours is a complete opt-in solution, right? You the part of the transparency is to opt in. Mm -hmm. um, but how do you track the information? What technology are you using? Is it pixel technology, cookies? If it's not those, how does it work? Yep. How's it, how's it, how are you accomplishing this? I mean, we're, we're clear on that with the users too. You know, we will take essentially only URLs from people. So the URLs you go that are in your browser history right now is what we collect. Obviously though, in the onboarding process, you're going to give us a little bit extra information. It's worth noting during the onboarding, we don't ask people for their first and last name. We don't care who you are as a person, right? Like I, I care about our users, but I don't oh, care about their name. name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about their name. And so the information we do ask though is like, you know, where do you live or, or your gender? Obviously, there's an option, you know, where you can say, I prefer not to say if you don't want to share your gender. And then there's also age range, right? Where do you fall in terms of your age? That's the type of stuff we're more interested in, because obviously, when we get these URLs, we then anonymize it. And on top of that, we break it up into audience segments. So 
I think down the road, people like brands are still going to advertise. My only, I guess, question is where do they get that intelligence that powers the advertising? Because with third-party cookies going away, because of these privacy changes, it's likely that brands are going to have to find a new storage of data out there that is entirely opt-in from people. And that is what is going to tell them, okay, I need to run ads on this audience segment in this area because of the fact that I know where they're going on the internet. And I feel like they're primed for conversion based on their activity and their behavior on the internet. That's the type of intelligence we'll provide brands. That's really interesting. How does this work on the user level versus the actual like device level? For example, I'm a 39 year old woman, but I have a 10 year old who will occasionally use my computer. <laughs> um, yeah. How are you able to distinguish? Is this the 39 year old woman or the 10 year old little girl who is browsing? Great question. Yeah, so we do allow you to create multiple accounts on the same device. So we encourage people, by the way, hey, if you do have family members that are going to use your surf account, um, try to create a different account. Uh, again, this is the same as like your Netflix account, right? If someone comes on and they start using your Netflix account, um, it's worth noting that Netflix is only now starting to fix that problem by detecting, you know, if I'm on my Netflix account and, I'm, and you're on my Netflix account, we're going to, one of us is getting booted off. And that way I can then message you to get off my Netflix account. It's the same thing with Surf as well. We don't want multiple people using the same account. We obviously wouldn't know. So sure, you guys could collectively as a family pool and get points. Um, but obviously, in terms of usage, maybe your son wants to buy something and you want to buy something else. I mean, that's just going to lead to an argument, in my opinion. So just it's a lot simpler. Create a separate account. It is worth noting we're only currently available in Canada and the US right now. And we're also only available on desktop. So we don't track anything on your mobile phone. Uh, it is something we are looking at later this year, is looking specifically on a network level. Can we not only collect browsing data from cellular devices, but can we also get app usage data? Because if the Apple IDFA changes with their iOS 14.5 update, that would be very important information for brands to understand is where are people going on their phone in terms of app usage and app activity? That'd be very interesting to be able to look at. Again, at the end of the day, the type of data we can get is infinite as long as the key principle of user trust is established and protected. If we continue to make sure that users are seeing Surf as a data partner for them and not just another place that's going to take their data and leave them out to the dust, then I think we can go into other areas like your Netflix data, your purchasing data, your Facebook data. There's no reason that a person shouldn't be able to monetize every single digital interaction they have on the internet. So I'm curious, uh, companies who buy this kind of data very often want enriched version of the data. They want some intelligence that they can take action on. And mm -hmm. The very savvy brands have that capability in-house. They, they take the data and then they match it up with all kinds of other information that they've, built, they've purchased to be more effective on, uh, in terms of their marketing campaigns. Are you guys enriching the data in any way? Are you using AI, for example, to make sense of some patterns, to create better personas for the end buyer? What, what's your thought process and how you guys are handling that and potentially how you might, want to, might be handling that in the future? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, right now with, with the brand data that we share, um, it's very much just around audience segments. Uh, so specifically, you know, giving like brands the ability to understand our surf user base, 
which is currently at around 55,000 people. So it's not a very big population yet, but we are estimated to grow to about 800,000 users by the end of the year. Right now, we're growing at about 4% day over day, which is nuts. Um, and we have a wait list of around 12,000 people that are from India, South Africa, Australia, the Philippines, the United Kingdom. So we are pretty excited just based on how fast this user base is growing that there'll continue to be value for brands in terms of understanding you know, various audience segments, what they're doing on the internet and where they're going. But it is also worth noting, we've been a data provider now for four years. Even before web data, we provided brands social data and first party data that was entirely opt-in. And the way we did that is by having a giveaways platform. So we ran a giveaways platform where people could come on, they could share their data directly to a brand with a chance to win a prize. And we had over a million people in the last year and a half that have entered our giveaways platform and provided their email or their phone number or their mailing address or their social data in exchange for the chance to win the ultimate gaming experience by Bud Light, for example. So we do enrich that data quite a bit on our platform where we allow brands to filter and segment that data. So for example, you could look at all the people that followed you on Instagram and you would immediately understand here are the people that are verified, have the keyword vegan in their bio, and are have between zero to 100,000 followers. That's how granular you can get through our platform and the filtering mechanism we built in. So before we shift into culture a little bit to talk about the, the company itself, because we mm -hmm. do have audience members who, who are always looking for great places to go work or, mm -hmm. uh, or, or, or looking out for the next emerging thing, yeah. um, I'm curious about... Um, What's going to happen to those companies that are monetizing, selling cookie data and pixel data today once the, the laws change and there are a lot more privacy functions in your you know, releases? iOS gives you a lot of uh, control over that today. So what's going to happen to those companies, do you think? Like how well, are they going to Yeah, they'll die. they'll die. They'll buy you guys? I know. Like maybe. I don't know. <laughs> They're like, you know, I, I think Surf is the type of company that could go public one day. So we're just very focused on, on trying to make this the biggest thing possible. But I, I think they'll probably die if they don't pivot to first party data, you know, opt in data, which, by the way, like even if privacy changes don't happen, like why not be on the right side of history? You know, why not provide ethical data to brands? Um, I actually right. find that to be a question that normally comes up quite a lot in my head where I'm like, you know, even if like privacy changes like GDPR and CCPA don't become a worldwide norm and they continue to only exist in California and Europe, why not, you know, like from a brand perspective, be on the right side of history and show that, you know, you care about people's privacy, you care about the information you collect from them and you're part of a system that directly rewards and compensates them. So I think that that's going to be important. I mean, there are a bunch of companies like you mentioned that are relying on pixel data, on cookie data, on traffic panels, especially in the web analytics space. And those are going to go away. And even if they don't go away, by the way, because of regulation, they're definitely going to go away once alternatives like us become more and more popular. Because if you're a consumer, you're going to start to become more aware about your data. And you're going to be a little bit more aware and wary now of accepting cookies, or you're going to be even more wary of, you know, cookie, like pixel data and what you're sharing. Um, so that's the type of stuff that we also want to make sure we do is constantly make sure that consumers are picking a choice that actually is better for them um, so that they can actually fight back against, you know, other players that might not be providing ethical data. Yeah. About that choice, what are you seeing demographic wise? Who is choosing to mm -hmm. protect their data. My 
hunch, my guess, what it, it would be like the younger generations. But is this across all internet users or is this an up and coming trend that as the younger generations grow and then as we therefore teach our children, what do you see happening? Yeah, it's a great question. So right now with Surf alone, I mean, again, we're close to 55,000 users now. And a majority of our users, about 70% of them are 18 to 26 year olds. Um, a majority of them, around 65% are male, and they're all based in mainly urban cities across Canada and the U.S., so L.A., Vancouver, New York, Toronto, etc. Um, it is worth noting, however, that the entire movement towards privacy is something that is way beyond even surf. Like if you look like a, like a platform like DuckDuckGo, I mean, DuckDuckGo obviously doesn't know how many users they have because they don't collect user data. That's the whole purpose behind their search engine. But they approximate how many users they have based on um, how many search results and search queries are being made each month. And so every single month currently, they're getting anywhere between 100 billion to 200 billion search queries through their platform, um, which approximates to probably around 50 to 80 million people are utilizing DuckDuckGo on a monthly basis. You have a platform like Brave. Brave is a great browser. They reward people for their data with cryptocurrency called Basic Attention Token. And they have about 48 million monthly active users right now. So there is a massive audience out there of people that I think go beyond even 18 to 26 that are interested in just the better alternative. You know, you're doing the exact same thing. You might as well just choose an alternative that cuts you in. Right. Yep. Perfect. So as we shift the conversation to culture now about mm -hmm. surf, so you're the 24 year old CEO, which mm -hmm. is pretty fantastic. <laughs> what else? What I is feel it? very That's... old all of a sudden. My son's 27. <laughs> oh, when I was 24, I could tell you that being a CEO was the last thing on my mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, what's your company like? Uh, what's the culture that you're building? Uh, who works for you? What type of people work for you? Uh, all, all types of people you know, work for us at this point. It's actually pretty cool because, uh, you know, we've been around for, for four years now. Um, and in the process now, we've grown a team of around 46 people. And uh, we have people that are, you know, younger than me. Like we have people that are coming in who are 18, 19, decided not to go to college. We also have, you know, some of our executives, like our, our CTO, who's 38, our CMO, who's 47. Um, so we have, you know, a pretty good gambit in terms of age. Uh, we also have a pretty good split in terms of gender as well between male and female. Um, and then in terms of our culture, we also do support remote work. So it's pretty neat. You, know, you don't need to be in Canada to work at SURF. You could be pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, we have even hired people like in the Philippines, for example, who started off as an intern or a contractor and then became full time with us. So it's been pretty exciting you know, to be able to run a fairly global company. Um, so yeah, the culture is great. Again, you know, right now we're working fully virtual, um, but I don't think any team member feels like we're missing out on too much because, you know, we have a Monday morning huddle. We have a Wednesday team call. We have a Friday team call. Every two weeks we play a game on the Friday team call. Uh, every three weeks we host a, host a hoax and fear session where we have like a pretty much like a vulnerability 101 hour. You know, we share our doubts and our fears and our hopes for the company overall. You could be an intern, you could be an executive, it doesn't matter who you are, you will have the floor if you want to share something. So we have those types of things baked in to make sure that even when we're working virtually, people can really get to know one another. Uh, and it's not something they have to go out of their way to do. That's amazing. Uh, even Hopes companies and fears. like Booz Allen do Hopes circle ups. They've been doing it for a long time. I learned a while ago. So it's good. It's encouraging to see that. 
I, I love that. I think vulnerability is the key to creating intimacy and trust amongst team members. Absolutely. And uh, when you have that, it creates a safe space, psychological safe space where you can just be human. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're, 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 we're incredibly like right away, like people know when they get hired at SURF that we trust them right away. You know, we have an unlimited vacation policy. We don't care how many days you go on vacation for. Uh, and candidly, we've never had an issue with it. No one's abused it because actually it was funny because last week I also had to, no, last week, uh, last year, sorry, I had to institute a mandatory two week vacation policy. Because in, in 2020, obviously I understand COVID, but like people weren't even taking time off. <laughs> like I had to literally tell people in 2021, I don't care if you're going up north to your cottage or if you're just putting your laptop down and not doing anything for a week and watching TV, we need to take time off. Um, but it's amazing because people are so committed nice. and dedicated. They love what they do. But again, things like the unlimited vacation policy just go to show people how much we trust them right away. Which is your swish. Culture, right? That's your biggest hope. It's all you, what you do is yeah. off of trust, right? Uh, I have is, to say, Swish, yeah. uh, your philosophy and your leadership it gives me a lot of hope for the future generation of, uh, of work because it's not just the current newer generation that desires that it's all of us who desires that right mm -hmm. uh, this duplicity that exists often where you have to be one person at home and then you have to put on this corporate face this mm -hmm. corporate hack face at the office nobody likes that it's exhausting that's why most ceos don't live very long mm -hmm. so it's encouraging to to hear what you guys are doing please continue to do that uh, as we part and because we're up on time any words of wisdom uh, you know you you're new to being an entrepreneur, but it seems like you, you're already successful at it. Any words of wisdom for potentially those folks? It looks like you've embraced a lot of people who decided not to go the college route, want to go <laughs> the business route. What's your words of wisdom there for someone, my, maybe some someone who's a graduate of high school trying to decide what am I going to do next? Should they pursue an entrepreneurial career or should they go to school? What's your thoughts? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, two pieces of advice. One directly answers the, uh, the question around college. I think, you know, for me, I never purposely dropped out of school in the sense of I never thought to myself, you know, hey, like I watched the social network, I'm in high school, I think it'd be pretty cool for my overall legacy and story to be a college dropout. You know, that honestly, like the amount of conversations I had to have with my family before I dropped out, I come from an immigrant family. Holy crap, like no one would want to wish that on themselves. Uh, but thankfully, you know, my mom and my brother are both very supportive of me. And again, it's, it's, it's helped a lot in terms of where I've been today. Um, but I think you need to be very intentional in the sense that if you are going to drop out, you know, have a clear path. You know, don't drop out for the sake of dropping out. Drop out because you don't only have an idea, but you have validation that the idea works. Don't only drop out. Drop out because you have a job offer in hand that allows you to go and work for a year and get some experience. So I think that's number one, you know, stay in school otherwise, because I actually am quite pro-college. I think one of the regrets I had in life is the fact that I wasn't able to finish my last two years of school with some of my best friends. You know, now I'm able to come back to Toronto and, you know, my roommate, for example, is my best friend from college. And it's nice, you know, to be able to, to you know, relive those days with him, but also continue to be connected to my college community. But that was something, obviously, during kind of the latter two years of college, I wasn't able to be there. I wasn't able to really catch up with my friends and do anything with them. So that was a little bit tough. And I think, again, college is great beyond anything else for the network that you build. I think the second key thing is just don't, like, rush yourself. You know, I, I, I find that a lot of people who are, who are, you know, 17, 18, 19, were growing up in a world where 
you want to be Mark Zuckerberg and you realize he became a billionaire at 21 and you set that goal in your head and then anything less is a failure. And it's, it's, it's frankly BS in my opinion. You know, I think everyone has their own chapter, their own story, if you will, and not to get too cliche, but I've, I've seen 38, 39 year olds that became successful for the first time in their life professionally. I mean, personally, I think they were thriving before, but professionally, they, they really found their first inkling of success there and they ran with it. You know, Coinbase, for example, Brian Armstrong, he went to Y Combinator when he was 34 years old. He just went, you know, obviously they're going public. He's going public as a 39-year-old CEO, right? So if you're 18, 19, 20, and you're putting yourself under pressure early on in your career, it's going to make you burn out and it's going to make you not feel great overall about what you're doing. Hey, I'm about to turn 51 and I'm still chasing the dream. So yeah. never give up, yeah. right? My mom, my, mom, my, mom, <laughs> my mom became an entrepreneur last year, you know, and it's amazing because I get to talk to her about that whole other dimension of her life now. And she's 54 years old. I mean, I don't think she probably wants me saying that on live, but, <laughs> but it's fine. Like she, it's her birthday that few days, but um, yeah, like it's, it's, you know, I don't think there is a timeline for this. I actually always joke around. I tell even my mom, I'm like, I think it's actually harder for people who are in their like 50s or 60s to become an entrepreneur than it is people in their 20s. So I always, one of the questions I always get, which I'm glad I didn't get it here is, oh, like it must've been tough to be a 20 year old entrepreneur. I'm like, it seems like everyone wants to be a 20 year old entrepreneur and that's just the norm. Um, but I think, you know, again, it's, it's worth noting that timeline wise, don't rush yourself regardless of where you are in life. You know, I, I like to really take a look at where I am and I like to balance, obviously, having great kind of work and, and passion and ambition with obviously, you know, the people around me, where I am, how healthy I am. Those are the things that, you know, I'm very kind of putting an emphasis and importance on this year as well. Well, Swish, it's been great to have you as our guest. We're up on time. We went mm -hmm. over time, but I really enjoyed hearing from you. And thanks for sharing that with us. And we wish you a lot of success. Thank we'll you. definitely have to stay in touch to see how this progresses along. Uh, stay with us as we go off the air in just a second. This is the last live show this week. Tomorrow we will have a restream and we'll have a restream on Friday as well. Mm -hmm. But definitely come back on Monday for the recap show at 12 o'clock Pacific. See you again soon. Be safe, everyone. And don't forget to have some fun. <laughs> Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com.